Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. We'll sing Psalm 22 in a moment, but before we sing that, I want us to look at the first part of this, Mark chapter 10, and we are going to look at what, what it really is to be great. Uh, maybe we as, aspire to greatness in different ways, but sometimes you hear, I think all of us, in, in some sense, want to be great. If you're playing one of the instruments there and someone comes up to you and says, that was great, you really appreciate. Uh, if you had a, a great meal or whatever, and <clears throat> there are different aspirations in terms of greatness. Now, that can be perfectly legitimate. You want to do your best, but it can also be very, very dangerous, and that's what we look at here. Jesus, on their way to Jerusalem, verse 32, Jesus leading the way. The disciples are astonished at everything that has happened, and uh, they're also afraid. Some who followed them were afraid. He takes the twelve aside and again tells them what is going to happen to him. It's a bit, if you, if you can imagine the scenario where you're going to Edinburgh, for example, during the festival, you're going for a big celebration, and you then announce, by the way, I'm going to be arrested, mocked, spat on, beaten, and killed. Can you imagine if a friend told you that, how you would react? Well, the disciples continue what they have done in the previous passage, where they, keep at, where they were asking, what do we get out of it? We've left everything to follow you. We're going to answer that, but let me just say something about what Christ himself does, verses 32 to 34. Firstly, we notice that his death was a violent death. I like, as I say, alliteration, so there's a, three things up there I'm just going to notice. Mocking, spitting, flogging, and crucifixion. Taken straight out of Isaiah 52 and 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I think particularly the verse where it talks about how he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. People want to make the cross a religious symbol. They want to make the cross into something beautiful, and it's not. The cross is horrendously violent. It is horrendously ugly. The only problem with Mel Gibson's passion was not the violence within it, but then that violence did not do justice to what actually went on. You couldn't look at the cross. You could not look at Christ on the cross. 
He's as one from whom we turned away our faces. It's an incredibly violent death. And Jesus is saying that to his disciples, that he's going to this incredibly violent death. Why? The second thing there is his death was vicarious. What does that mean? We mean substitutionary. Verse 45 says this, even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve, to be served rather, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There was a price paid. Whose ransom? Paid to whom? By whom? The price is simply this, that for God to be God, he has to be just. He has to be fair. And therefore, he has to punish sin. But if everyone has sinned, then he has to punish me. He has to punish you. I've just got involved in a discussion with somebody who objected strongly to the idea that uh, he thought I was calling him evil. And now he's objecting to the fact that I'm calling myself evil. Because as somebody who is a human being, I know that every single human being has evil within them. We are made in the image of God. We have good within us, but there is evil within us. And we can't pay for that evil. We can't get rid of that evil. We cannot not sin. The harder we try, it seems almost the worse it gets. And Christ came and his death was to be in our place. He paid a debt he did not owe. He paid the ransom. He paid for my sin. It's like if you're um, going to jail. I don't know if you've ever been to jail, but you're in court and you stand in the court and the judge pronounces the sentence. You will go to jail for 12 months or for two years or whatever it is. There's a price to be paid. But what if you could be released from that? What if justice could be done? Again, a, a, a scenario that sometimes is used is if, you, uh, if somebody kidnaps someone, maybe uh, a young girl is kidnapped, and the father might say, well, look, I'll go in my daughter's place. I will replace my daughter, get, release my daughter, and I will be your captive instead. There's a ransom that is to be paid. And I think that it is, we, we need constantly reminded that if we are Christians, we are Christians not because we are good people, not because Christ picks us, because we are uh, kind and generous and so on. We are only Christians because Christ died for us and we've committed our lives to follow him, trusting in that. Christ's death also, the third thing, was voluntary. It was his own free and deliberate choice. Verse 32, he ended up being alone. He was ahead. He was leading the way. The disciples were astonished. Those who followed the disciples were afraid. He was courageous. It was deliberate. I don't know what you're like in terms of self-will or, or determination to do something. Some people are very, very determined, but most of us struggle with even being determined to diet, never mind die. 
But Jesus was determined to go and to die for his people and to die for us. I think it is uh, an extraordinary thing that we need to remember. And you may be here and, and you're not a Christian or you're thinking about becoming a Christian or you're confused as a Christian or you've lost sight of things as a Christian. You're all worked up about a lot of different stuff. And what you need to get back to is realizing that the heart and the center of the Christian faith is Christ's death on the cross. And he did it for you. Now we'll see what our response should be in a moment. But let's sing about that. Let's sing from Psalm 22. The tune is sold down. And the reason we're singing this song is this is the song that Jesus, I doubt he sang it, but it's uh, that he quoted. We know that he quoted it. Uh, both the beginning and the end, and possibly in his hours on the cross, possibly the whole of it. He would have known it all. Uh, It's a song about his suffering on the cross, predicted in the Old Testament book of Psalm, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken and abandoned me? Why are you far from giving help, from listening to my anguished plea? This is the baby in the manger who grew up and who died. Look at Mark 10. And I want to think about how we react to this because it has enormous implications for us all the time about who we are, about how we become Christians, about how we respond to Jesus, how we praise him, about how we live, how we react towards one another. And again, you might be someone saying, "I, I don't just quite get this. Well, you're not alone. Because the disciples didn't get it. And I I would honestly say, I think many of us as Christians, we don't get it. We need to be reminded of the baby in the manger, how wonderful that is. And we need to be reminded it's even more wonderful that he was born to die. And this was his death. And it was done for us. It's interesting that in Mark's gospel, this is the third time that the disciples have been told by Jesus that he was going to die. And each time, they didn't get it. Each time, they reacted in a way which could only have hurt Christ. Each time, it's followed by misunderstanding and a wrong reaction which had to be corrected. So, let's see what we do. First of all, verses 35 to 40 talk about what we want. Here, James and John, in particular, the two sons of Zebedee, come to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit on your right hand, the other at your left in glory. I don't know if you've ever said anything inappropriate at an inappropriate moment. Uh, I mean, I, I have certainly said plenty. But you just, you, you know, somebody comes up to you and says something. And maybe they tell you something really personal and really deep. They talk about somebody having died or whatever, and you make a remark and you think, why did I say that? Well, what, a, what an occasion for these men, after Jesus tells them about the cross, to react in such a way. They wanted to follow Jesus. There was a personal magnetism about Jesus. They were astonished and afraid, but they reacted in a way which shows these four things, ignorance, pride, fear, and selfishness. And I want to suggest this to you. That even if you are a Christian, that you are like me, you are a human being, and you're like these men, that they were human beings, they were ordinary men. And 
I think that very often we react in this way. It astounds me that sometimes we come to God's word, we hear God's word, we teach God's word, we're in church, we go away, and our response can be like this. First of all, in ignorance, you don't know what you are asking, he said. They didn't understand the cross. They thought that the kingdom was about to come. They thought that Jesus was about to become king and that they'd be the chief officials. Give me a job at the top table is what they are saying. Now, why did they think that? Because they do what you and I do. We listen to what God has to say. We filter out the bits we don't like and we accept the bits that we really do like. Sometimes the bits that we like are the horrible bits, but they're horrible bits for other people. So you could be sitting here just now and you're thinking, oh, I really hope so-and-so is listening to that. We are very, very, very good at that. We have great filter systems that we can block things out. We can stop things happening. We hear only what we want to hear. They'd heard about the kingdom. They knew that Jesus was a king. They knew that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to establish his kingdom. And all they thought about was the glory. Christ had just been speaking about gore. Christ had been speaking about blood. And they think about glory. They think we can follow Jesus. Drink the cup he's going to drink. We can serve Jesus no problem. Jesus uses this whole imagery of, of drinking and so on. Can you drink the cup I drink with? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And he does that. To say I am going to be overwhelmed by pain, sorrow and suffering. Do you think you can handle it? See a religious person goes I can handle it. It's no problem. I can do what the religious people say. A proud person says, I can handle it. But think about what we've just been singing in Psalm 22. Have you ever had that experience where your heart is so broken, it's ripped to shreds, that it feels like it's going to melt to wax? Have you ever been in such agony that your breathing is so labored that when you look at your body, you are, you are so tight that you can count the bones that are in your body? Could you go through hell? Could you bear the cross? No. You couldn't and I couldn't. And when we come to God and we say, but God, you don't know what I've suffered. We are being appallingly ignorant. Because God's answer to that is, you don't know what I've suffered. You do not know what I have suffered. They were ignorant of themselves and they were ignorant of Christ. Jesus says, you know. But what they do know just highlights their own ignorance. So often we react in a bad way because we're ignorant. Sometimes one of the best ways to come to Christ is to be, you know, somebody will come into the church and say, I don't understand all this. I don't know all this. Actually, do you know this? You're probably far closer to coming to Christ than somebody who comes in and says, I know this. I know about this. Verse 39, pride. What do they say? We can, they answered. Can you drink the cup? Can you be baptized with the baptism of suffering? We can. Ignorance is often the breeder of pride. If you think highly of yourself, if you think you are better than other people, it's because you're an ignorant person, ignorant of God and ignorant of yourself. And fear. They were afraid, not because they understood the cross and what was going to happen, but because they did not understand they saw something of the power of Jesus, but they did not understand. 
Jesus tells them they'll drink the cup and they'll be baptized with baptism. And they are frightened and they are scared, as we so often are scared of following Jesus Christ and scared of what might be around the corner. When we hear bad news of someone being sick, when we hear bad news, when we're afraid of of so many different things, because we don't understand and grasp who Jesus is and what he does for us. And I think probably the biggest thing is selfishness. What do I get out of it? James and John were actually probably the wealthiest of the disciples. Don't think all the disciples were poor. Their father had hired servants, according to Mark chapter 1, verse 20. He had a fisherman's business, and perhaps they themselves thought that their social standing meant they deserved more. They were ambitious. Look at verse 35. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What a nerve to come to Jesus and to say, Lord, we want you to do whatever we ask. And yet, I tell you, that that attitude is one that's deeply ingrained in the Christian church. We come to Jesus. I I mean, I meet people sometimes who say, I'm not going to believe in Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus because I asked him to do this and he didn't do it. Sorry, why was he obliged to do it? We think we're in that position where we go to God and we make demands. But we can be incredibly selfish. I think this is a big problem for me personally and for the church. We always talk about what we get out of something. Friendships and fellowship. Oh, I got nothing out of it. Worship, I got nothing out of it. Bible reading, I get nothing out of it. Christian lifestyle, I get nothing out of it. What we're really saying is, Lord, give me whatever I want. The new spirituality, as it's called, new age spirituality and so on, it's incredibly selfish. It's all about me, me, me. Now what happens is, of course, that that wrong attitude leads to fighting amongst the disciples. Verse 41, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. So not only did Jesus have to cope with going to the cross, not only did he have to cope with two of his best disciples coming and asking for something that he wasn't in a position to give. But then his, the 12 that he had chosen fall out amongst themselves. And that's heartbreaking. You know, if you're in the church, and you'll you'll experience, if you've been in the Christian church long enough, unless you are completely brain and emotionally dead, you will find that Christians fall out with one another. And it's astonishing. God is at work. There's something going on. The Holy Spirit is working and you start fighting with people. I've used this example before, but for me, it's probably the most powerful example in my own personal life. When I was, not long after I became a Christian, when I was about 17, um, we were in a small prayer group, about six of us, we prayed for God to be at work and God really worked in our school and lots of people became Christians. And at the time when that happened, all of us had a big bust up. I remember falling out with a girl in our prayer group because we had a stand-up argument in a prayer meeting about whether animals went to heaven. I mean, what were we doing? But I mean, we were yelling at each other in the prayer meeting. It was really, it was just bizarre. The devil knows that we are very, very weak people. And he knows that the fellowship of the disciples can be wrecked by an attitude of selfishness. I just think, go back again to what Jesus felt about this. Here he was with his friends, pouring out his soul, and looking at what his friends were discussing, their own position. 
you and I, we have to be so, so, so careful about making everything about what we want. We have to be so careful. Please, I, I, it's, it's, it's just such a horrendous testimony to Jesus. How do we get real greatness? Let's just think about that. Verses 41 to 45. He calls them together. Jesus is patient. He teaches us. He calls them together. It's why we come together. Christians fall out with one another and say, oh, I'm not doing this and I'm not doing that. You know, sometimes we're such big bairns. And, you know, have you ever seen people in a spiritual huff? It's just, it's extraordinary how long it can last. Jesus calls us together to worship him and he wants to teach us. And this is what he teaches his disciples. It's a huge lesson. He's saying that greatness consists in service. First of all, listening to Jesus. We don't keep coming to Jesus and telling him everything. We listen to what he has to say. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Secondly, greatness, real greatness, consists in service. It's the opposite of the world's view, for whom greatness consists in having servants. How many people do you employ? How many servants do you have? Now, we, of course, most of us will say we don't have servants, but we employ people to do lots of things for us. In this world, one of the biggest problems is that we wish to do as little as possible and to get as much as possible. Now, I'm not just picking on the younger generation here, but I do believe that the generation before me and my generation were disgraceful in instilling this attitude, and now we complain about it. But there are so many people in our country whose view is the world does owe me a living. And I want to do as little as possible and get as much as possible. The Christian attitude is the very opposite of that. For the Christian, greatness consists not in what we can get, but in what we can give. When Paul and I mentioned, I referred to this several times this morning, so I want to read just a little bit of it in Philippians chapter 2. When Paul is dealing with a situation in a church where two women are fighting with one another and it's causing discouragement and, and disharmony within the church, in Philippians chapter 2, this is what he says, each of you, verse 4, should look not only to your own interests but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul is saying to these two women who are having a fight in their church, and it's probable that they were both leaders of two separate households and the church would meet in the different homes. And it's possible even from the names that are used that one was from a Jewish background and one was from a Greek background and maybe racial factors came in or whatever. But whatever the, the reasons behind it, Paul doesn't try and deal with those. He goes right to the core of how it should be dealt with and he just simply says, I want you to stop and to think about Jesus Christ. Get off your high horse. Get off all the stuff that you have about your rights. She did this and I need this. Because being a Christian is not about having power over people or controlling people. It is about serving people. I hear so much in the church of my rights. 
And I, I, it, it's just so distressing to hear. I think I'll give you two examples, and there are many, many others perhaps you can think of. I remember once being in a meeting where somebody who was clerk of a committee, wasn't even that important a committee, that we were talking about, well, we're probably going to get a new clerk, give the guy a break. And he stood up and said, I have my rights. And he wasn't being paid for this. I will sue the church. And this guy was a minister in the church. I'm going, what? What are you doing? That's absolutely crazy. What are you talking about your rights? We're going to be looking um, tomorrow night. I forgot to mention this. Half past six, uh, looking at the, uh, the book, The Shack, down in the Tartan Cafe. John Ellis is going to be speaking about that. Feel free to come along. I only discovered, actually yesterday, that William Young, the author of The Shack, is suing his publishers for $8 million dollars having earned 10 million already, and his publishers are other Christians, and they're in court fighting with one another. And the Los Angeles Times and the New York Times are having a field day with this. I'm going to fight for my rights. I think when you look at Jesus Christ, you've got to say, get over it and get over yourself. We are here to serve Jesus Christ. Now, I did see a really good example. You know, when you do stuff together, when you do things practically together, it really helps. There's lots and lots of people in the church who are very, very good at yak, 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 and they can see the problems, and they can see what should be done, and they want to campaign for what could be done, and usually it means, follow me. But what works so much better is when we just try and help one another and we try and serve and follow Christ together and just get off our hobby horses and get off our, you know, just the way that, that we think we're so great. And I, I used the example of yesterday because I thought it was fantastic the amount of work that people put in uh, and all that was involved. Now, the, the guys who were out, and it was cold, out the bottom of the street, handing out leaflets, nice smiling faces as well. I mean, it was really quite incredible to watch how they did that. And the people who were in serving here and people who were in the kitchen. And, and uh, I mean, someone like Drina who's here who, who isn't even a member of this congregation, but here serving Christ in the kitchen, working away in the, in, in the kitchen, out on the street, handing out leaflets, walking around this coming week, handing out Christmas cards to people. Staying here this evening to, to lock up the church. Lots and lots of different things that people are doing. It's not about my rights. It's not about your rights. It's what can I do to help? How can I serve Jesus Christ? That's why the whole hierarchy of the church thing is so wrong. I, I hate it when you see popes and bishops and ministers and, and people like me who are, who are church leaders... And it's almost as though you expect people to bow to you. Well, actually, literally, sometimes that is the case. It's just all wrong. Greatness consists in serving. That's what Jesus was saying. And when you've got people who give themselves airs and graces and who think they're really, really special people and they've got to have the best seats and they would say, you've got to give me more money because you recognize how good I am and so on. You just think, no, no, you haven't got what being a Christian is. Because greatness consists in following Christ. That's really, isn't it, what verse 45 says. That's, let me just read it again. 
Verse 44, rather. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Somebody comes and asks you to do something in the church, and you go, oh, no, not again. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Whatever you have to give up to follow Jesus, it will never come near what he has given up for you. And by the way, those of you who have fallen into the trap of thinking, I can follow Jesus and it costs nothing. I can have everything else as well. The answer is no, you can't. Can we drink his cup or have his baptism? Yes, we will. Verse 39, Jesus says, you will drink the cup I drink with and you will be baptized with the baptized with." In other words, he's saying, you will suffer. If anyone would come after me, Let him take up his cross and follow me. He's saying that will happen. But, Hebrews 12, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you'll not grow weary and lose heart. All over the church in Scotland, I'm meeting more and more people, more and more Christians who've grown weary and who've lost heart. Why? Because the church is messed up? That's not a good enough reason. Because you're messed up? That's not a good enough reason. Because things are wrong? That's not a good enough reason. Because Jesus said all that will happen, but we should not grow weary and give up because we're looking at Christ who for the joy set before him endured the cross. See, when Jesus is saying you will suffer, he's not saying it's miserable. He's saying there's joy in service. He's saying the power of God and the teaching of God and the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit all benefit that service. He's saying the cross brings salvation. He's saying that the followers of the cross bring salvation and joy wherever they go. There's a reluctant servant, isn't there? You know the attitude. This is, I know that this is wrong because my mother's from Edinburgh and I lived in Edinburgh for a while. But you know what Glaswegians say about Edinburgh people? That when they come into your house, they say, you'll have had your tea. Because that's it. You know that sometimes you can serve somebody, but it can be with a really reluctant spirit. You know, you'd be really miserable in your service. Well, have that and do this and it's my turn and I'm on a duty rota and I've got to do it. So just get on with it and get it over and done with as quickly as possible. But the kind of service that Christians have is a joyful service. You know, when people came into the building here yesterday, one of the most common reactions that you get from people is, this is not what I expected. But forget the building What about if people meet us as Christians and see how we operate together as Christians? Would they really be able to say, it's not what I expected? Why do people care for each other? Why do you care for me? Why are you even bothered? Why are you doing this? Why are you cleaning this floor? Why are you you helping? I've got a friend down in Edinburgh, in fact, he is going to come up and, and, and talk to us, Mez McConnell. And those who are doing the Porter book thing have met Mez. Uh, I'll just tell you the story so you get some example of what this service means. And then we'll finish. Mez 
had the roughest life you could possibly imagine. He, um, he'll tell you this himself, but he went to jail because he tried to kill his mother. He tried to burn her to death. He set fire to her bed. He was in a family where there was systematic abuse and he himself became uh, addicted to drugs and alcohol and so on. He went to uh, prison, got out of prison, went, he was from uh, Ireland and he then went to the south of, of England and he was in a town there and he met some Christians who were preaching to him. And he didn't understand a word that they said and he hated them. He trashed their cars. He did lots of stuff to them. He ended up going back to jail. And he went to jail about 300 miles north of where he was staying. And those Christians visited him in jail. Nobody else visited him in jail. Not his own family or anyone else. Those Christians visited him in jail. And he abused them and he called them for everything. And he said to them, you know, why? Why do you, why do, you do this? And when he came out of jail, he went to stay with one of them in, in, in their home. And although, again, in a sense, he felt that he was using, he was also astonished at how willing they were to serve and to help him. He went to church, didn't understand it, thought it was really boring. But somebody met with him every week to sit down and talk through the Bible. Gave up their Tuesday evening to every week sit down. And he absolutely loved that because he got a chance to discuss and to ask questions and to find out things. Well, Mez became a Christian. He then became a missionary in Brazil. And he's now doing church planting in Edinburgh. And he's a great guy. And God's really using him in so many different ways. But if you ask him, he will say it is the love of God in Christ that drew him and it was what he saw in people who really believed that because they were willing to serve. Now, I think that I and probably most of you, when we met Mez and when he abused us and if he trashed our car and so on, we just would have said he's an absolute waster. Forget it. We, we, can't, you know, we can't have anything to do with that. But if that's the case, I think we're like these disciples. Don't despise these disciples because they're us. Being a Christian is about serving Jesus Christ. Now, I know for some of you, being a slave of Jesus, being a servant of Jesus, it doesn't quite gel so well as being a friend of Jesus and being Jesus' brother and so on. But it is the same thing. Because to serve Jesus Christ is the greatest possible thing that you can do. And if you grasp that and you get aware of that, it's something that just brings great joy into your heart. It's something that it is a real pleasure. You know, sometimes someone in a shop uh, may serve you. They're very polite in Scotland, you know. And uh, you say, thank you very much for serving me, whatever. They say, well, it's my pleasure. Sometimes it's just talk. But for a Christian, it is actually our pleasure to serve people. Even though it may be hard. Even though it may be painful. So Christ does this for us. We react often in a bad way, going on about what we want. But real greatness consists in loving Jesus and in following Jesus and in serving Jesus. And in practicality, that just simply means that we give our all to follow him. I am amazed at the year that has just gone by. 
I'm astonished at so many things that have happened. I look at the year that's ahead and think, oh, how can we, how can anything possibly happen? You know, there's so much bad stuff around the corner as well. And yet, I know that God will use us in this church if we have the attitude that it's not about me, it's not about us, it's about serving and following Christ. And if we need a motivation to do it, it's not even that we're looking at all the other people. It's that we're looking at Christ and seeing what he has done for us. And you think, well, what can I give him? Just the lot, just absolutely everything. Lord, take whatever gift, whatever money, whatever life, whatever home, whatever body that I have and use these for your glory. You know, later on, John and James, they did face that baptism of fire. How? Well, in Acts, we read that James was martyred, first of the apostles. And John, it's generally believed, and I think this is right, that John went to the island of Patmos as the last of the disciples in prison. The disciples were exiled, they were killed, they were imprisoned. They went through the baptism. But I tell you this, they had more joy following Christ after the cross, after Pentecost, than they had before when they were looking to be kings, or at least very high up in Jesus' kingdom. After the cross, most of them grasped and got, had to relearn it again and again, but most of them got it wasn't about them. It was about Jesus and extending his kingdom throughout the world with them being as his servants. You and I, we, we must keep coming and saying, Lord, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. And once you get that, you will get the most glorious liberation from all the fears and pride and arrogance and hurt and wounds that you could possibly imagine. Because if it's not about you, then none of that ultimately really, really matters. It's, uh, for me, I joke about it a bit, but sometimes you get a lot of abuse and a lot of different things happen. People say, well, how do you cope with that? You know, you must be as hard as, as nails or you must be as tough as can be. No. You just have to look and you just have to say, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And I think if we have that attitude, and I need that more and more, then we will truly be able to serve him. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. Bless it to us. It's such a great thing to think of you dying for us. And Lord, I just pray for anybody here who doesn't know that, that they would see it. There's nothing they can do to save themselves. Nothing. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would show them that Jesus died for them. And I pray, O oh Lord, that they would just respond in love and adoration and even tonight just commit their lives to follow you. Who is worthy to follow like you, the, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me? And I pray for those of us who are Christians as we come here battered, weary in well-doing, worn, frustrated, angry, 
embittered by past experiences, looking at other people, getting wound up, concerned. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to look away from all the waves around us and to look to Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. I pray that you would encourage your own people here. I pray, our God, that that we too would celebrate in the joy of forgiveness, that it would be as though we'd been converted again, that we would be renewed and strengthened and joyous and exultant. And as we've sang of joy to the world, that as we go from this place, that it's just be our whole burden, that our neighbors and our friends and our workmates and the people in this city and the surrounding area and in our whole nation would know the joy of Jesus Christ and that they would want it because they see it in us. Lord, forgive our selfishness and our ignorance and our fear and our anger and our pride, our stupid, stupid pride, the sin of the devil, and help us to be fully human by committing ourselves totally and completely into your hands. We love you and we adore you. Grant, O oh Lord, that that would remain with us as we go into this week. In your name, amen.